Hi, I'm Carmen LaBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBurge on Faith Radio. Good morning. It is Friday, the uh, the tenth of June. I'm Carmen LeBurge. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. This is the Faith Radio Network. Depending on where you turn for your news, actually, depending on where you turn your attention in primetime programming, you may or may not have seen the first installment of what is going to be a multi-week media event. Featuring the work of the Select Committee of the U.S. House of Representatives appointed by Democrats to investigate the events of January 6, 2021 at the U.S. Capitol. Now, if you are listening closely, then even in the way that I just framed that sentence, you can hopefully fear you can hopefully hear (laughs) that I am attempting to reserve judgment on the veracity of the claims made last night which plainly stated at various points that then-President Donald Trump not only did nothing during the hours-long assault on the Capitol, the Congress and his own Vice President Mike Pence, who were under siege and threat of physical harm. But at one point, um, President Trump, in response to the specific threat to, quote, hang Mike Pence, uh, the president said, quote, Our supporters, maybe our supporters have it right, adding that, quote, he deserves it. If that does not give you pause, then I suggest nothing will. Here's the challenge that we face. Most people, dare I say the overwhelming majority of Americans, have already made up their minds on which narrative related to January 6, 2021, they believe. And I want to make an appeal to each of us as Christians, and ask the question, are we people who value the truth over personalities and partisanship or even patriotism? And if so, then we must pursue the truth and then conform to the reality that the truth reveals. But that's the question. Are we people who value the truth, no matter what it exposes, no matter where it leads, And I readily acknowledge that the made-for-media production of the January 6th Select Committee hearings um, feels like a production. I also acknowledge there are realities exposed in their findings that uh, have been heretofore undisclosed. Now, that means that I have to decide whether or not I'm actually interested in the truth. Whatever it reveals... Or if I am so committed to whatever my current position is, even if that position is constructed on something less than the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So one thing is clear. I I think one thing is clear. This is a moment in American history that is worthy of note. It's not always 
that the hinge of history is so evident. Now, I think the timing is terrible. There aren't a lot of people paying attention to politics, let alone primetime television, between Memorial Day and Labor Day. Just not the time we're doing that. And there's no way that I could or anyone can accurately summarize last night's media event, which is only episode one of what the committee says may be as many as an eight-part series. So nearly every network gave the production airtime last night, except for Fox News, which notably is the network watched by nearly half of Americans. And likely the overwhelming majority of those Americans the January 6th committee is actually trying to reach with their message. So I will say this. Last night's initial offering made clear that the committee is convinced that former President Donald Trump bears some responsibility for fomenting, failing to intervene, um, appearing through his comments during the events to, at some level, support the actions of those who sought to subvert the peaceful transfer of power when they disrupted the U.S. Congress during the constitutionally mandated electoral count on January 6, 2021. I think that much we can say. I submit that the committee is looking to present sufficient evidence to not only dissuade Mr. Trump from seeking his party's nomination for another presidential bid, but potentially offer sufficient public evidence to lead to some level of indictment of the former president on some January 6th-related charge that would prevent him from holding future office. That That's my take. That's my take on what um, is happening in the January 6th House Select Committee uh, hearings that are unfolding in public. But again, we're only one segment into something that's going to take at least the month of June, but very likely longer than that to unfold. So the bottom line for believers is this, I think. Do I care more about the truth than anything else? That's the question I think we need to stand in front of a mirror and ask ourselves today. Do I really care about the truth more than anything else? And if not, then what do I care about more than I care about the truth? Is that the right ordering of my priorities as a Christian? Is that Christ-like? We are either people of the one who alone is the way and the truth and the life, or we're ultimately found to be not his people. Next up, we're going to survey the Liberties Roundup with Steve West from World Magazine. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Attorney Steve West joins us again. He's the editor of the Liberties Roundup at World Magazine. You can find what we're talking about today at WNG. That stands for World News Group, WNG.org. Steve, welcome back. Thank you, Carmen. Yeah, so brief us in on this Fellowship of Christian Athletes uh, story out of San Jose, California. Sure. This is one of the most uh, egregious cases like this that I have seen. There is a uh, Fellowship of Christian Athletes club. Uh, it, 
at this high school in San Jose, California, Pioneer High School. Like many high schools, uh, these clubs exist and for fellowship and encouragement of athletes and other students that are there. And this club has been meeting for over a decade at the school, sometimes with participation of up to 200 students in it. And last week, a um, California uh, judge, a federal judge in California, upheld the school district's decision in 2019 to withdraw official recognition of the club because it required club leaders, not members, but club leaders to sign its statement of faith, which included a statement that its sexual expression is limited to a uh, the relationship between a man and woman in marriage, so biblical marriage. And because of that, uh, it was withdrawn from recognition. So that means that the club, while it can meet on campus, it can't use any, can't publicize, it can't use any of the other means that other clubs use on campus to do that. So that's where they stand at this point in time. So they brought a lawsuit. Uh, the, the judge ruled in that way, and so now it's going to go on appeal to the uh, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals to try to overturn that. So talk with us about the process. I think that, you know, Steve, so many of us, um, you know, we hear the um, the facts of a case it seems so, like, apparent to us what should happen. Um, and then there is this process, and, you know, a court decides this or a panel of judges decides this, and it gets like, it's almost like a tennis ball back and forth, and sometimes they send it, you know, back to the lower court, and then there's this process of of seemingly endless appeals. Yeah. Do these things ever end? <laughs> well, they do. They do end at some point. It sometimes takes quite a while because you look at this one and you think, well, it started in May 2019, and here we are in 2022, and this club has not gotten official recognition for that whole period of time. So, you know, this one started back in May uh, 2019 when this pioneer teacher actually criticized the group in front of his classroom for its beliefs. And then some students complained, and, and so then this club was, was basically ejected from the campus, and not only at that campus, but at two other campuses that are in the area. So, no, it goes on. It, it keeps going on in that respect because lawsuits take a while to wind themselves through the court system, and then when you have an appeal, that takes you know can take another a year or sometimes two years to work through the appeal. So we don't look for this to end anytime like real soon. Uh, it'll take another it'll take another six months to a year probably for the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals to deal with it. Okay, so um, I think that's a good reminder that there are some prayers for endurance and perseverance required mm-hmm. um, in the days in which we live as Christians uh, in this culture, exactly. uh, you know, on this particular front. All right, Steve is going to uh, be with us here um for uh, for a few more minutes, we're going to talk about um, an Illinois college that's trying to silence a Christian student. And we're also going to talk about a really interesting story related to a postal worker's Sabbath request. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Continuing our conversation with Steve West. He is an attorney who serves as the editor of the Liberties Roundup for World Magazine. You can find what we are talking about today at World News Group, WNG.org. All right, Steve, what's going on um, in the attempt of an Illinois college to silence a Christian student? Well, you know, most 
of us would think of a uh, no-contact order or a restraining order as something that might be used in a sexual harassment case or perhaps a domestic dispute where one spouse is threatening another with physical violence. But this is this kind of thing has become more common in a uh, university setting. This is the second one we've seen this year, in fact. So here in Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville in Illinois, the school issued the no-contact order to a graduate student, Maggie DeJong. Now, Maggie DeJong has not threatened anybody, but Maggie has posted views on Facebook and other social media uh, that are not culturally favored. Let's put it that way. They're conservative views on religion, politics, critical race theory, COVID-19 regulations, and censorship. And so because of this, Three students complained, actually at the, at the encouragement of one of the teachers uh, in that art therapy program. Three students complained to university officials, and because of that, the university issued its own no-contact order against Maggie DeJong, telling her not to have any contact on or off campus against this particular student. So she sues over that, because if she does have any contact with them, she would be disciplined, and that would perhaps keep her from graduating. So that's there's some consequences for her if she violates that order. And, you know, you can inadvertently violate any such order. She, if, for example, she's walking down the hallway, and here right. comes one of those students. So, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a really a, a difficult thing for her. Uh, and, and it also results from an expanded definition of what's oppressive or what's hateful or whatever, you know, what's actually harming students, you know, all, all she is doing is expressing a view that they disagree with, that they find uh, repugnant, perhaps. But that's, you know, most of us wouldn't think of that as harm, you know, or certainly not a threat to them. Steve, if, if I thought of that as harm, then people are harming me now on my text line. Exactly. Right, because some people vociferously disagree with me about my opening segment. And, um, and they are making their feelings and their views strongly known. Um, I'm not hurt by that. I'm not, I'm not uh, taking personal offense. Um, people are expressing their viewpoints. I recognize that. I honor that. I've expressed my viewpoint. Um, this is what a conversation looks like among adults seeking the truth and speaking the truth. Um, I think part of the challenge that we have in our culture is that we've, uh, we've begun using the court system to resolve interpersonal conflicts that really should be resolved through conversation and dialogue and people growing up. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and also there's a sort of a diminished view of what free speech is. You know, usually we used to say, uh, you know, how do how do you deal with speech you don't disagree with? Well, you just, there's more speech, you know, more talking. Uh, voicing your own opinions. You know, even the American Civil Liberties Union now, which was at one time a staunch defender of free speech, you know, said, even defending members of the Ku Klux Klan, which very few people would agree with, uh, now says it doesn't support speech that creates a pervasively hostile environment for vulnerable students. So what is that? Well, that's just views that students disagree with. And, uh, I think it also comes from a very fragile sense of identity. When you have a fragile sense of identity, you you can't tolerate people saying things that sort of threaten what you base your you know identity on. So that's difficult, uh, very difficult. All right. Talk with us about um, what is happening with Gerald Groff, who doesn't want to work on Sunday. 
um, and he is a U.S. postal worker. Right. Gerald Roth is a Christian who believes um, that he should not work on Sunday at all. And so he's typically, uh, throughout the past, has sought, sought a, uh, a uh, religious exemption to be able to work on Sunday. That's work, not work on Sunday. That's a, uh, uh, something that's allowed to him under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, provided that it doesn't pose an undue hardship to his employer here, the Postal Service. And so at this point, um, Gerald Groff, uh, the Postal Service office there, which was a very small office in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, uh, denied him the ability to have that uh, full day off on Sunday, and he brought a lawsuit, and he actually lost that lawsuit because the court said that um, it did pose an undue hardship to the Postal Service to uh, to allow him to do that. It made the point that, uh, you know, it's not an absolute right to be able to do that, that it has to give way to hardship. And here the court looked at the hardship that was posed to coworkers in the small office uh, co-workers of Groff, as well as the postmaster himself, who was having to fill in for him on Sundays. You know, they they were um, they did this for a while for him. They they were able to swap shifts and everything so they could cover for him. But ultimately, um, the postmaster indicated that morale suffered, and you know, it was, it was a burden to these other postal workers to be able to do that. So some of it comes down to you know what is what is an undue hardship, and the Supreme Court has not uh, has not. Re- um, revisited that recently to determine. Right now, what that is, you know, um, typically employers don't have to show a lot to show undue hardship. Here, I'd have to say the Postal Service was, was fairly accommodating. They offered to give him time off to go to worship on Sunday. They offered to give him another day of the week if he wanted to treat that as his Sabbath. Uh, but that uh, wasn't wasn't sufficient. Uh, you know, Gerald Groff said that he needed actually the whole day off on Sunday, his Sabbath. Which is his, uh, which is his position that uh, he's a Sabbatarian, uh, but here it just had to give way uh, to the postal service. Hmm. All right. So, um, you know, I'm thankful that I have a job that doesn't require me to work on Sunday, um, but I recognize that an increasing number of uh, people work for organizations and entities that you know have expanded into Sunday um, work or Sunday. Uh, services of one kind or another. So uh, we no longer have that protected space in our culture um, for many, many people. And, uh, you know, I just, this is going to be an increasingly interesting conversation going forward in terms of work on, um, on, on the Sunday Sabbath. So Steve, um, as always, um, thank you so much. I I am interested. um, I heard um, a news item last night out of the 10th circuit um, in relationship to something called Faith Bible Chapel International, this is not a story that I was uh, familiar with, but I, it is one that I'm hoping you will um, that you will follow and maybe unpack for us in the future. Um, we got a couple of minutes left to talk about the public pool request that has stalled. Um, talk, talk with us about this. Kind of an interesting well, story. You know, it it seems like a little story, of course, but it's uh, it's really important to this particular community's small town, Palatka. Florida, south of Jacksonville, Florida, and here's a church, Calvary Missionary Baptist Church, that has a community pool. It's free, open access to all uh, all of the residents. It's the only free community pool in the pool in the area, so low income residents particularly take advantage of this. But the pool is closed in these renovations. They requested a thirty five thousand dollar grant from the city, 
in order to you know renovate this and get the pool back open for folks. But that's been held up. Uh, the Wisconsin-based Freedom from Religion Foundation, which basically goes around challenging um, any kind of public recognition of religion, uh, has challenged the funds, sent a letter to the uh, city commission uh, saying that basically the church is going to use this to recruit people, uh, recruit kids to, to come to church there, and therefore taxpayer funds shouldn't be used uh, to do that. And uh, so uh, the town is, the funds have been held up at least temporarily uh, while the town visits that issue and looks to see whether or not there's some uh, entanglement here with religion. This is this is just a uh, completely uh, wrong path to go down. There's a Supreme Court case that clearly says that when you're offering a neutral public benefit uh, to people or to organizations, just because it might benefit religion in some way doesn't mean that it's prohibited by the establishment cause of the Constitution. So I think that the uh, town will eventually come around in this case, but it just points out the confusion that can flow uh, from from these kind of, um, you know, from, from these kind of, kind of things, and particularly when you have challenges from, eight, uh, from organizations that are just really out to completely uh, keep religion out of the public square at all. Steve, as always, um, thank you so much. You guys can uh, follow what Steve is working on and get the Liberties Roundup in your uh, inbox via email from World Magazine. You sign up for that at wng.org. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge, and this is Faith Radio. All right. Thank you again for all of the robust interaction on the text line this morning. You can always text me during the show, 877-933-2484. If I don't, um, if I don't respond to you as robustly as you are responding to me, just recognize it's because I'm actually trying to pay attention also to the conversations <laughs> yeah, that we're having. Um, all right. So there are a lot of things going on in the digital world today. A lot going on on social media and on the social media front. Um, And you may say to yourself, I'm not on social media and that is irrelevant to me. I'm not even sure I know what TikTok is. Um, I'm not sure I care about um, online debates going on on Twitter. Okay, so I understand that and I um, appreciate that. But when we talk about the way that emerging generations communicate with one another, it is less and less, you know, over the traditional telephone and less and less over what we would call long form um, conversations like the one we're having today. It's very short form. It's very fast. Um, it's video rich. It is uh, absolutely um, uh, favors the most extreme of everything you could ever imagine. Um it's humor at the expense of others and often degrading. And and the truth is very sometimes hard to find in the midst of all of it. One of the things that does happen online, um, and it's so sort of curious and interesting, it, and it happens across every platform and every segment of the culture, is grief. People very willing to grieve in public online we're going to talk with chris martin um he is uh, an editor for moody press he's a social media consultant 
He talks with us about social, uh, the social internet and trends there. And we're just going to talk about how weird it feels. Not only to observe grief online, but to grieve online. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. All right. We are thrilled to be joined again by Chris Martin from Terms of Service. That's the book. That's also the blog. Um, he is an editor for Moody Press and a social media consultant and a friend. Chris, welcome back. Hi, Carmen. It's good to be back with you. Hey. I feel like we've only talked a couple times in the last month or so, given me being around, out and about and, and absent. I know. And then you were absent last time I was on. So I know. I know. So um, so thank you so much. Um, love, love our opportunities to catch up. I love what you're writing and how you're thinking about um, our interaction with one another that takes place increasingly and frequently um, in online spaces. So you, your attention has been drawn to grieving online. Just talk with us about um, maybe what captured your attention related to this, and then we'll, we'll walk around in some of your observations. Yeah. Um, you know, the last couple years have been really hard, and I think anybody listening uh, would probably agree with that. It's not like we're in unprecedented territory in terms of life being hard. People who are alive today lived through World War II and the Cold War and all kinds of like, you know, um, uh, violence and protesting in, in around the Vietnam War. I mean, there, there have been plenty of tumultuous times in our country and in our lives in the last couple of generations. But the last couple of years between super contentious political atmospheres and a global pandemic that truly was unprecedented for pretty much all of us who weren't alive for the Spanish flu, which I think is almost all of us at this point. Um, so it's been just really hard. And I think as we've increasingly lived online over the last five to 10 years um, and become more comfortable with bearing our souls on the internet, uh, to other people through the medium of the internet, usually through social media platforms. Um, I've started to think about what it means to grieve online and I, I and to to really wear our hearts on our sleeves on the internet and and particularly in the realm of of grief or like sadness and and negative emotion because the last couple of years have been so hard. There have been plenty there have been plenty of things to grieve in the last two years. And um, that, that are totally worthy of grief. Um, but as I live online and use social media personally and in part use it for my job, I have just started to wonder more and more, is it good for us to grieve online? Is it mm. appropriate? And I used to I used to, I guess, grieve online. I guess you could say what I mean by that is like posting content on our various social media feeds that expresses our sadness, our frustration, our anger towards something terrible that's going on. So mm -hmm. what, what drew this to mind very recently were really a couple of events. Um, one was the um, release of the, the sexual abuse report regarding the Southern Baptist Convention. I attended Southern Baptist Church and worked for Lifeway Christian Resources for seven years, which is a part of the Southern Baptist Convention. So I am very 
close to that situation or, or at least have been in the very near past. And so plenty of people that I personally know were involved in that whole dust up one way or another and, and were involved in being a part of creating the report or or were in the report. And so it was really hard for me to to see come to light everything that came to light through that report regarding sexual abuse cover-ups in the Southern Baptist Convention. And then around, frankly, right around the same time, um, the horrible tragedy in Uvalde, Texas, with the shooting of all the students and, and the teachers there. Mm-hmm. Um, there were plenty of opportunities in like a six-day window or so toward the end of May for a lot of my friends and people I know on social media to be posting grief content. People mm-hmm. who are angry about what they're seeing, people who are frustrated. Maybe, you know, they're not they're not clenching their teeth in anger, but they're just frustrated at what's going on. Or or they're just very sad and they're and they're just, you know, lamenting through a Facebook post or a tweet. Um, and that's all fine. I'm not here to pass judgment on those people and say that that it's morally wrong to grieve on the internet. Like I I, I think it would be overstepping for me to say that, and I don't even think that's necessarily true. However, as I processed through these things that were very hard for me, did not affect me you know, personally, but were very hard for me to witness. And especially the the shooting in Texas had my stomach turning over, especially mm-hmm. now that I have a daughter myself and, and feel that in a way I maybe didn't feel it when I was 22 and, and not married or whatever. Um, I was like, I remember weighing that week or so weighing, do I post something about these things? Like these things are grieving me and they make me feel sad and angry and frustrated should I post like, is there something I have to say? And what I kept coming back to is I kind of like wrote posts in my head and like drafted things like, when I going to say this, I'm going to say that. Is it worth it? I just came to the conclusion that grieving online feels weird to me. And I, and I don't get it. I don't get it for myself. I'm just, I get it for why other people do it. Uh, but I don't get why I should do it. Why, why do people care what I post in terms of being sad about a situation? So I just thought, you know what, I should write about this because I have a feeling that I'm not the only one who feels this way, who feels a tremendous amount of grief about what I see in the world, but doesn't feel like it's appropriate to just talk about that online. Uh, And so I wrote about it. And I frankly, Carmen, I got more response to that, that article this past Tuesday than I've gotten to anything in six months. And and Hmm. people were basically saying, yeah, I totally feel this. Like, I feel kind of bad for not expressing my grief online despite how bad I actually feel and that's kind of where I'm at it's like I almost feel this sort of responsible this social responsibility to lament online about these terrible things but like why where's that come from there's there's no reason for that so anyway mm-hmm. I was just I was just kind of wearing my own heart on my sleeve saying hey this feels kind of weird to be so vulnerable in such a non-intimate space It's interesting to me, uh, you use the word lament. Obviously, that is not a word that, um, you know, a person might use outside of um, a Jewish or Christian context. We use that term here a lot. We talk about lament. We talk about the need to recover um, lament as a practice, to study the Psalms of lament, to use them in our prayer life when we are aggrieved at the things that grieve the heart of God. We also talk, Chris, about... um, sort of checking our grief against the question of, does this grieve God? And if it grieves God, then it absolutely ought to grieve me. But that ought to be my first question. Um, does this grieve God? If it grieves God, then it ought to grieve me. And if it grieves God, um, how am I going to process that as a person of faith? 
And lament is is a God-directed prayer. And so one of the questions that your piece provoked me to ask is, when I'm tempted to post my grief or my grievance online in some social space, am I doing that as a um, substitute, weird substitute, mm-hmm. for actually getting before the Lord and spending some time in honest lament? I mean, I totally. recognize there's nothing I can do. Like, there's nothing I can do. I feel like there's nothing I can do. That's that frustration. That's that, uh, you know, that disempowerment. And so I feel like, you know, posting something is doing something. But we've talked about before, posting something is not doing something. That's, you know, that's you're that's not changing the reality on the ground for right. the people in Buffalo, the people in Uvalde. Um, the people, you know, who have been abused by pastors uh, or camp counselors over the course of time, like that's not changing their reality. Um, that's right. But somehow we do feel like posting is doing something. Can we maybe circle back around to that? I know that's a that's like a historic conversation, but I feel confident that's a conversation you have pretty often. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I I think that. You know, there's there's a thing called slacktivism, which is, you know, like uh, like lazy activism where you post about things on the Internet and whether it's a social justice issue or something else that you post your outrage and your your lament or your grief about that situation. And then, yeah, like you feel like you've participated and you feel Mm -hmm. like you've uh, contributed to a movement or to to eradicating that injustice. And it's just untrue. And there's so many really smart people who have written a lot about about why that's a problem. In fact, I, I saw a clip the other day that's rather old of former President Obama talking about how he has a problem with slacktivism. And and it naturally, it's kind of interesting because that rose, it kind of became a trend around the time of his being in office just because of how the... You bring to mind evolved. that whole save our, save our girls. Right. Yeah. I yeah, mean, that I mean, was, or, or Coney, right? There was Coney, this hashtag... Yes. Coney yes. 2012 was like one of the first examples of slacktivism. Gosh, ten, mm-hmm. literally 10 years ago now, which is crazy. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I think it's I think all of us really should examine our hearts when it comes to posting grief or grievance on the Internet and ask. Because what I found is that I found that I probably would have just been doing it for like self-service. Like who's going to be helped by my grief? Probably mm-hmm. just me, uh, it, meaning posting my grief online. I don't think it's wrong to grieve, but like. Posting my grief about Uvalde or uh, Uvalde or, or Buffalo or or the Southern Baptist Convention situation, uh, I would just be it would just be this sort of release valve for me. And is that healthy? Is that is that good? Sh- should we be doing that? And and exactly what to your point, am I just doing this as as a replacement for some sort of more valuable, deeper form of grief where I could go to my God and lament or or confide in a friend, or if it's if it's if my grief is bad enough, a licensed therapist who can help me work through my grief. Social mm-hmm. media is not our therapist, and it is shockingly scary to me how often it seems to be used that way. That's an interesting observation. Um, I think it's a substitute for real relationships and real conversation, and the genuine processing through of um, events that. Uh, that we need to be processing through together because we need corporate, collective, social answers to the questions that are being um, exposed by the the public trauma. 
Um, and so we have these public sources of trauma. And I think that at some level, we imagine that we're processing that grief publicly, but we're really not processing the grief at all. We're, we're just shoving it out there um, in the public eye. We're not actually processing through it, which is, you know, I think you're um, your appeal to spending time talking with a licensed therapist, um, you know, or your pastor, a Christian counselor, like, right, that's, um, that would be time much better set, spent and grief much more um, uh, processed in a much more healthy way. Chris, let's, um, let's return to this conversation in just a moment. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. We're talking with Chris Martin from the Terms of Service blog. That's also the name of his book. He's the editor or, and editor for Moody Press and a social media consultant. We're talking about um, online grieving. It does feel weird. Maybe it feels weird because it is weird. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Continuing our conversation with Chris Martin, you can find what he's writing at the Terms of Service blog. Um, we're talking today about grieving online and, you know, frankly, that it feels weird. I think it feels weird because it is weird. Uh, and yet we do it. So, um, Chris, when we talk about public trauma, um, I also think that there is some I, I, strange um, value. I think that's the word I'm looking for. Uh, like if I don't if, if something horrific happens. And everybody is posting about it and I don't post about it, then does that suggest to everybody that I don't care? I'm not concerned. I'm not grieved. Do you see the challenge, right? It's not that I have a fear of missing out on the grief. I'm grieving. But there's this expectation that, well, if you don't say something about that, then, you know, are you not as concerned about the shooting in Uvalde as you were about the shooting in Buffalo? What does that say about you? Are you not as concerned? You, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Totally. Totally. And th this is a really good question. And this is something that I have debated. We're getting kind of like social media inside baseball here, but people who spend any time on social media, their ears are probably perked up at this. Like they probably understand this sort of tension. And this is something that I wrestled with a lot when I worked in social media more from a professional standpoint, because I, I helped run social media. I mean, I did run social media at Lifeway Christian Resources, one of the largest Christian resource providers in the world. And we would often wrestle with this from a sort of corporate perspective. Like, what things does Lifeway post about, you know, and 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 call our audience's attention toward and what things do we not from, a, you know, because because brands have to wrestle with that as well of like, what do what do they post about? And what and actually I'm writing a piece for next week on on brands and issues like this. But mm. um, but yeah, like I've, I've wrestled with this kind of thing a lot. And personally, here, let me say two. I kind of think I have two thoughts here. One um, is nobody is obligated to post anything. So. There's been a mantra on social media as long as social media is around that says like such and so's silence is deafening. Uh, mm. No, that's foolishness. <laughs> I don't want to hear that. That's that is that is if you say such and so's silence is deafening, you know, and you're relate you're talking about like somebody not posting something on social media. All you've told me is you spend too much time on social media because such and so not posting about your issue that you're thinking they should be posting about that person could be going through something in their own life they could simply be going about their life and not posting as frequently as you think they should be uh like nobody is obligated 
or accountable to anyone for saying something about something on the internet. Like that's just, and that's something that I've had to come to terms with over the years for my, for myself, for, for organizations that I've helped run social media for. And as I've consulted with authors who, who work through issues like this, I often tell authors like, you're not obligated to talk about everything that everyone's talking about. Um, secondly, uh, we, we shouldn't feel like the only way to care is to post online. And I think sometimes that is what it comes to. However, let me say this to the first point about how nobody's obligated to say anything. If you are the kind of person who uses social media in such a way that you do post about everything, like you post about tragedy A and tragedy B and tragedy C, and then tragedy D comes along and you don't post about it, people will understandably wonder why you did not post about tragedy D when you posted about tragedies A, B, and C. That's understandable. Um, and this is where like, I've had to catch myself of that such and so silence is deafening, falling into that mindset. Because there are some people that I've followed on social media who, who love to talk about issues uh, you know, uh, issues that are interesting to them, you know, in the realm of politics. But then when there's a political issue that's super prominent and, and in the news that maybe sheds bad light on their party or their movement, they decide not to talk about that one. And it's like, well, you talked about all these other political issues, but you're not talking about this one. That seems kind of interesting. But it's so, here, so here's what I would say. Nobody's obligated to post anything. But if you're the kind of person who's posting about everything and then you don't post about something, you may be communicating a message to your followers. Is that a fair assess? Like, is it fair for them to judge you for what you don't say? Uh, no, probably not. Because again, you, you may have been out on family vacation and just couldn't post about whatever that thing is going on in the world. Um, but I think generally speaking, my counsel is just don't post about any of that stuff. That's, that's the personal conclusion I've come to is I do tend to stay away. And this is just in the last year or two. Uh, I tend to stay away from all major current events as best as I can posting on social media because I can't talk about all of them and I don't want to talk about three of them and not all 12 of them or whatever. I just try to stay in my lane and post things that are funny to me, interesting to me, or are related to social media in some way. So if there's a major world event and there's a social media angle, uh, then I'm going to probably post something about that. Like if I read an article about how social media played a role in the tragedy in Texas, I might share that article because if social media played a role that that's kind of in my lane. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think everyone should probably think about what their lane is on social media, even if you're not an author or anybody who's well known, just figure out. I think this is just part of having an intentional relationship with social media. Think about what you want to post. And if what's going on in the world doesn't fall into the the realm of, of who you are and what you like to post about, just refrain. Like we don't have to participate in every conversation that goes on. And I think people forget that. Yeah. Some um, social media expert told me once that I should choose a lane and I should choose a, um, a particular social media platform and I should just cultivate um, a commitment to that particular platform it, you know, instead of trying to cover the waterfront, I don't know who that was, but he was pretty smart. <laughs> um, 
So and I'm not good at it. Like, let's just all confess and admit Carmen is not good at social media. I I uh, I get really excited about, you know, conversations in one particular place and I give it some attention for some period of time. And then, you know, that wanes and I move on to other things, you know, because I got I got a real life to live. Um, and so I think that's a part of this conversation as well. If you think I'm not talking about something on some social media platform, it might be because I'm collecting eggs or mowing the yard. So there you go. And, and, um, Chris. And look, hey, and, and there are. It's it is it is a good thing to be bad at social media. Let me say that. (laughs) There you go. go. That is expert advice for today from social media content um, expert Chris Martin. It's good to be bad at social media. There you go. Hey, Chris, have a great weekend with your people. Thank you. You too. Thanks. Where in the word are you on this Friday? I'm in John chapter 13. I'm there because that is the preaching text for this Sunday um, in the church that I attend. So where are you in the word right now? Are you spending your time um, in community with other Christians? Are you studying the word in not only your quiet time, but sitting under some really good preaching where the word of God's being, you know, unpacked in community and worship. I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you. You can't love uh, Christ without loving the bride of Christ. So if you're not engaged in a local congregation, we really encourage you to, um, to re-engage with the local church this weekend. Um, yeah, I want you to be an integral part of the body. If you're not in the church, then the church is literally missing you. Um, and we, we would love to see you this Sunday, um, one way or another. All right, we got another hour of Mornings with Carmen. Up next, I'm Carmen LeBurge, and this is Faith Radio. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way, you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.